Hoody hoo. Alright guys, we are back with another one. I think this is going to be episode 40. And um, this is with a guy who, if anyone has kept up to date with some of my activity lately, I've done a few shows and here and there. And uh, one of the links that I put up on Facebook is with this guy named Denver who has a radio show that I was on. It was really fun. Um, it's uh, called Beating the Odds with Denver. And um, yeah, and here's, well, the, the host of it. Denver. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> you having me on. No problem, buddy. Um, so yeah, so you, I mean, you have like a very detailed story and very interesting. Um, obviously, you're blind, but it it goes way deeper than that. Um, so yeah, start from wherever you want. So I, first of all, I want to start off by saying I have mental health issues. I have anger issues. I have memory issues. Not everything I will say is perfect detail because it is even uh, gray areas to me because most of it is um, retold to me by people that were sober or people that lived it while I was high as a kite. Right. So I'm not perfect by any stretch, okay? Well, then you're perfect for the show. <laughs> All right. Trust me. If you, so, if you listen to my story, it's, it's not far off. So, Other than the addiction stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, just tell whatever the, you, you know. And, you know, like I said, I can't, I can't call you out on it because I don't know your story. And, and regardless, I believe that you're going to tell it to the best of your ability. So, um, yeah. so my story goes back to eight years old. Um, I had been abducted and sexually abused. And when I came back home to live with my parents, um, I had the privilege of knowing some really, really shady people. And so I had the ability to access drugs and alcohol at a very young age. So I started drinking by the time I was eight years of age. Now, when you said you were abducted, was it by someone you knew? No. Um, there is no concrete evidence as to who did it. But I can tell you what I know of the people mm -hmm. <clears throat> that did it, and I can tell you the organization that they're affiliated with. They are directly affiliated with an organization known as NAMBLA. Okay, yeah. Everyone and knows who they if are. anybody were to Google them, they're the North American Man Boy Love Association. Yeah, yeah. Um. They claim to be uh, endorsers of pedophilia. And that is public information that is on their website. That is what they feel, what they think, what they do. It, it bothers me a great deal, but I was abducted by a man who was highly connected within them. 
and I was traded and abused for several years. Wow. So when I got free, and it was a long path to freedom. It was a hard road to escape. When I got away, two young teenagers tracked me down with the help of the organization and sodomized me to a point that they had to respect my bowels. Wow. I nearly bled to death before I was able to crawl to help. And you were how old at this point? <clears throat> I was eight years of age. Eight years, okay. Um, now, because the reason why I asked that is because you said that you kind of started trying drugs at eight, and you came back to your family. What you, did your What was your family doing at that time? Uh, my dad was the director of Job and Family Services for the entire state of Ohio. He worked for Governor Voinovich's cabinet. He was directly connected to Governor George Voinovich. Now we're, we're, and go ahead, go ahead. that's the state of Ohio. Right, right. So I had a lot of shady friends, compliments of my father and the people he associated with. <clears throat> So alcohol was readily available, drugs were readily available, and so I got to drinking at a very early age. When I first tried it, it was just an experiment. When I realized what it would do, it became medicinal for me to some degree because it gave me an opportunity to escape what had happened. So for a long time, that's why I used alcohol. Over the years, I got myself in to much bigger messes. I met a woman that I was very much attracted to with just a little coaxing from her. And she had no clue she was coaxing me to do these things. But uh, with a little coaxing from her, I stole a Harley Davidson that night. You were how old? Oh, I was 18 by this point, 19. Okay. Now, in, uh, in between that time, you were still drinking a lot? Oh, God. I was abusing drugs and alcohol um, probably more than I had ever been abused. Right. Um, because at, at my worst, I was mainlining a gram of methamphetamine in the morning to jumpstart my day. And I would mainline nearly a gram of heroin at night to come down off of the meth from the day. Uh, they call that speedballing. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. It's it's a deadly combination, but um, when God don't say uh, when done correctly, because there is no correct way to abuse. Right. But there is, um, there is a but, easier way of not killing yourself. I mean, I guess pro- yes. prolonging it, I suppose. Yes. And, and you almost have to know some chemistry to understand what the limits are and where to go and how far to go. Because if you go too far, there's no coming back. Uh, so I got mixed up. In a big mess where a woman I knew that I had only met hours before um, had wanted to take a ride on a heart. So, like a dumbass, I hope it's okay to say that on your podcast. Yeah, you can curse all you want. Go ahead. Um, I stole a Harley that night. Now, little did I know at the time that I was stealing it, that I was stealing the motorcycle of the vice president of a very well-connected motorcycle club, which (laughs) later came back to bite me in the ass. I I got into some pretty serious trouble for stealing the motorcycle after fleeing from the police. I was eventually arrested and taken to jail where that vice president was currently being housed for his warrant. That's because crazy. unbeknownst to him, he had warrants when he called to report his motorcycle stolen. Uh-huh. And when they came to take his report, they took him to jail. So that was kind of like karma for the both of you. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You could call it that. So the karma was that they put us both in the same cell together, which is a detention room where they put all people when they come in for intake at the sheriff's department. It wasn't like that was the only place. That's just where they put everybody. Uh, if you're a male, you go in this one. If you're a female, you go in that one. So they put us together. When this guy finds out who I am, now he wants to kick my ass. And I surely don't want to be uh, made to look like a punk, if you will. Um, that's jailhouse terminology for somebody that's easy to right. get over on. Right. So I didn't want to look like a punk. So I stood my ground. The two of us got in a fist fight. We ended up in segregation for several weeks. Um, as we got back together through a system called kiting, which is where inmates 
they fish notes back and forth to one another um, using pieces of uh, of a torn sheet. They tear sheets up into fine strips and they create a fishing line and they'll toss it out of their cell using the weight of a paper clip or something else to weight it down and they'll sling it and hopefully it will reach to the next cell over and they can pass information back and forth. Um, using kites, um, I got my information to him. He got his information to me. And surprisingly enough, based on my explanation of things, he respected what I did, was not happy with the fact that it was his bike I stole. As we were able to get back into the same pod, we were able to talk extensively and become somewhat decent friends. Um, that later solidified into something much bigger, uh, much bigger than I ever could have imagined. Did he get his bike back? So, yeah, he got his bike back. So he, to make things right with him, I had to, in turn, steal someone else's bike. Mm-hmm. So this motorcycle club that I was affiliated with now, indirectly, had a rival club that they wanted to get even with. And I was their tool for that. So they sent me to steal a Harley from somebody else. And... I'm just dumb enough to do it. So I stole a Harley. It gained, it kind of solidified our friendship completely. So we started riding together and I was what they call a prospect. Right. Yeah. Which is somebody that is potentially going to become a patched member of the club if they get past the probationary period. You're basically like an intern. Yeah. But doing a lot more. So we went to a motorcycle rally in Chillicothe, Ohio. It's called the Easy Rider Rodeo. It's held at the county fairgrounds right directly next to the Chillicothe Correctional Institution, which is a state penitentiary. And interestingly enough, it is directly across the street from Ross County Correctional Institution, which is also a state prison. So we're at this easy rider rodeo. Things get carried away and out of hand and 
a whole ordeal of things occur. Long story short, I come to the aid of this man whose Harley I had once stolen. And the way in which I came to his aid landed me in Lucasville, which is the state prison <clears throat> maximum security. So I'm in Lucasville doing an extensive stretch for crimes that I probably shouldn't have been there for, but because of my behavior, it warranted putting me in a max facility. I was quite stupid, quite ill-behaved. I would fight. I didn't care who I fought with. I'm a big man already. I'm six foot three. At this point in time in my life, I was at probably 250 in solid mass. I mean, I could leg press like nobody's business. I could bench press like nobody's business. And my punches, when they connected, hurt like that. So I land myself at Lucasville, and I'm right smack in the middle of the Lucasville riots. I lost all my good time and ended up maxing out. So upon my release, I go right back to work doing some of the exact same stupid things that got me there to begin with. So I'm cooking meth again. And I'm running with the motorcycle club. And I got a lot of money. And I need to hide some of that money so that people aren't looking at me wanting to know where all this money came from. So I learned a few things about business. And became a very uh, enterprising businessman in my area. I opened up what are called escort services. Yep. Uh, for those who don't know, that's a glorified prostitution ring. Right. <clears throat> so I opened up an escort service. And I opened up another. And now I got more money than I had before. And so I invest in a strip club. Now, is this to clean your dirty money? I, yes. To buy yes. legit businesses so that you can run your dirty money through it. So that way yes. it looks clean on your taxes and, and so the police can stay out of your business and all that. So I opened a non-alcoholic strip club, which means my models can be totally nude. So I opened the Riviera Club. It's a members-only club. And 
things are looking up a little bit. And I screw things up again and get busted once again, this time for prostitution. I'm caught compelling prostitution. That means I made girls work for me. I would slip them a Mickey at a bar, um, get them hooked on drugs and alcohol. And then in order for them to get their drugs and alcohol from me, they would have to work for me. And as you typically understand, or as some people understand, it's more drugs than alcohol. That's why a lot of women turn to prostitution. That's how a lot of men get women to work for them, is by slipping them mickeys and keeping them strung out on drugs as long as they can and forcing them to work for them to pay for their habit. For their habit, right, yeah. Now, before you continue on, uh, the fr- when you went to jail before, how, how long uh, were you in for? Before the, the riots? I was sentenced to eight years. And in the state of Ohio, under the old law, eight months, and 13 days was a year. So I spent a total of six years in prison at Lucasville and the like before I was released on a max out. Right. Um, yeah. And I didn't mean to throw you off. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, any more questions? No, no. I just wanted to, because I didn't want to go over that oh, de- yeah. detail. Somebody will probably be yelling at me. Like, why didn't you ask him? How long did he get in for? Um, <laughs> because you were about to go into your second stint of what you just got busted. And so I, I was like, well, I need to ask him the first round. Yeah. But go ahead. So you got so, arrested again for prostitution. So I get arrested for compelling prostitution promoting prostitution, pandering obscenities, uh, abduction, uh, a a whole laundry list of charges. And so they, they tell me, you know, we just want your customer base. You give us your customer client list and we'll forget this ever even happened. You know, we'll we'll give you a misdemeanor charge. You'll be on your way. And uh, that wasn't going to happen. Um, I had become too well connected. And to give up my client list would have put me in serious jeopardy. So I kept my secrets. I stayed to myself. I ended up getting a three-year sentence for compelling prostitution, promoting prostitution, and pandering obscenities, as well as sexual battery and abduction. Um, So I did another three years, and in 1999, when I think I'm going to be able to settle down, and enjoy life and do things right. 
I find myself right back in the thrall of things. <clears throat> and the feds are now investigating me because I'm a known affiliate of a nationally known club, an internationally known club. And I, I wear gang tattoos and so they've got all these reasons that they're investigating. Did you wear the jacket and with the patches and everything on it too? Yes, I had my 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 jacket and right. They call them colors. Colors, by right. the way. Right. And we wear split rockers, which indicate we're an outlaw MC, an outlaw motorcycle club. Uh, I wore a black diamond. I had a. A filthy few bar, a dirty dozen bar. Um, I had my enforcer bar. People knew me as the guy to stay away from. I was that guy that if the motorcycle club, if you owed the motorcycle club money and they said we were going to send our collection agency, I was the collection agency. Right, which was not a I was a sick individual because at this point I'm still doing drugs. I haven't stopped doing my meth. I haven't stopped doing my heroin. I'm still drinking alcohol and I'm just an absolute disgusting ball of meth. Right. Now, every, and, every uh, time you got out of jail, were, was the members there to pick you up? Of the um, not necessarily there to pick me up. But they were there for me when I came home. Right, to welcome They you had home. my back. They had my patch. They had my colors. They had a bike for me. Right. And I could go back to work. Right. And nobody ever, nobody ever suspected from the very beginning that I was a meth cook, that I was one of the best meth cooks that money could buy. And so the feds are still investigating me, trying to figure out how they can get me on a RICO violation because they want to put me under the prison system just like they they wanted to put people like Sonny Barger and so many others, John Gotti, the list could go on and on. They want to put everybody that they deem to be leadership quality as far under the prison system as they can so as to not let them out. So they're investigating me on the RICO Act, and the only thing they can get me on is money laundering. So I get a two-year sentence for money laundering. This is 1999. I go to prison. I come home. It's 2001. And <clears throat> I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm trying to get myself together. I can't find a job. I've now got three prison numbers. And nobody will look at me because when I put down on a job application, that from 1990 to 2001, I was incarcerated. Nobody wants to talk. Right. Nobody. 
in those 11 years that you did off and on, like what, 11 years total. Yeah. Yeah. Did you like, what was your mindset in jail? Even the first, second, third, like, was there ever like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to change my life or, uh, or, or yeah. Did you have that mindset? And then, the, you know, the gang was right there to change your mind back or were you just, there was, there was never any thought of changing my lifestyle. Never. Because the drugs and the alcohol were as readily available in the prison system as they are on the outside. And interestingly enough, at one point in time, I became the meth cook for all of the prison guards at one of the institutions in which I was incarcerated in. I was given a job within the prison system that gave me access to a paint booth. And a paint booth is a very clean room that has ventilation systems that pull all the particles out of the air. So it sucks everything out. No keeps smell. the air nice and clean beautiful and it provides heat which is necessary for cooking meth as well so i become a meth cook for the entire penal system hmm. i'm i'm an asset to everybody they love me i'm a hit everywhere i go i'm a hit um for this reason and that's it almost sounds like I'm boasting or bragging when I say that. No, no, you're good. But but that's not what this is meant to be. This is meant to right. to share an experience so you guys understand the mindset of a convict if if they're given the right set of circumstances, maybe they'll change. Right. And a lot of people get written but, get written off because of you know, like you said, like when you came home, them giving you your patch and, and your bike and everything back is like, oh, here's another job. Well, they're the only people in town that would have done that for you because everyone else would have shunned you and just said, you know, we don't want you because of your past. And so you're basically forced to go back to that lifestyle or be homeless or, or whatever and do certain things that you just don't want to do. So if you want to come out of jail at a, at a comfortable life, just go back to what you were doing. And so unless people have an open door for you and just like, Hey, you know, we'll give you love. We don't care about the tattoos. We don't care about the crimes that you committed. Um, which is really unrealistic because most people don't have that mindset. Criminals are thrown to the, the wayside. And unless you come back, you know, super religious and maybe, you know, maybe your past, maybe there's not too much violence in there. Maybe somebody will give you a shot at a grocery store or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, with the past that you have, no one's going to throw a job at you. And, you know, so it's all about circumstance. Again, like I said, some people fall into the right things and some people have to work harder to, to get their notoriety or respect back or whatever. But, you know, usually when you have certain labels on you, people just, they, they keep that on you for the rest of your life and there's not much you can do. So in 2001, when I came home from prison, um, I couldn't get a job anywhere. Um, but one thing I did know 
more than anything else was how to start a business from scratch and build it fast. So I took my skills and I set myself up rather quickly. So I took the money I had available to me and I filed my articles of incorporation with the state of Ohio and I started a business called Wild Turkey Enterprises, a trucking company that was an umbrella for a lot of other businesses. Um, I run a shop called Bramble Service and Body. Um, I had a motorcycle shop called Red Motorcycles. I had a machine shop called Red's Machine Shop, all under this umbrella of Wild Turkey Enterprises. It's an easy way to put your foot down and build a business that absolutely cannot be destroyed even if you go to prison. What you do is you incorporate a business as an enterprise and you create subcorporations under it, also incorporated, and you file as a C-corp, not as an S-corp. And so all of the taxes for that business, all of the income for that business are absolutely separate now. And I started drawing a paycheck, a weekly paycheck, so that my family would have income and my salary was comparable to, comparable to my services, basically. Right. Now, Um, all this this work, is it clean? Like nothing dirty about it? 100% clean. All right, cool. 2001, I have decided that I need a change. I really do need a change. Um, and I can't, I can't get this business going without seed money. So it's late December 2001. I decide that it's going to have to wait till next year before I can really take it off the ground. So I reach out to some friends and I land my dream job. I get my seed money in less than a year. I can earn six figures, 100% legitimate money, and have a place to live while I'm doing it, have a roof over my head, food in my gut, clean clothes, clean everything everything I need and it's all 100% legal and legit. So I'm excited. I've finally set everything up. I can put the plan into motion so I go out to celebrate. And like an idiot, I did what I always do and I got high. The very next morning. How, How long were you clean up until that point? About six months. Okay, well, that's pretty good. Uh, I've been home since December. 
And this is in May, so yeah, about six months, five to six months. Okay. <clears throat> so I decide to get high. So I go out and I celebrate and I celebrate and I celebrate and I celebrate until the next morning. And I get a call at eight o'clock in the morning that says, Hey, you got to be here at noon. We got a jump to make. My first jump with the company, it's a circus jump and I'm in trouble because I'm still high. But I go to work like an idiot and I'm working and I slip. And I dropped something on me. They take me to the ER. And what's the first thing they do at the ER when you come in with a work-related accident? Yeah, they test Drug it. test. Yeah. So I drop a dirty urine. My boss fires me. And this is my spiral down. My proverbial rock bottom is at this moment in time, and I don't realize it. I had no clue. So I come home after my wife picks me up. I'm determined that I'm going out to get high. Now, how long, so were, tell how my long wife, were you married? I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep cutting you off. It's just hard to. Uh, uh, no, no, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, how long um, were you married? At this point, at this point, I've been married seven years. We got married in '94, mm-hmm. while I was incarcerated at Lucasville. And she supported you through all this. Um, she didn't necessarily support me, but she was there for me. That's what I mean. I don't mean emotionally. Yeah. She yeah, yeah. was there for me. Yeah, I don't mean. Um, yeah. she was emphatic that I must change in order to come back home to her. Um, But she, like I, did not believe in divorce. She was a devout Catholic. She just, there was no way she was going to divorce me. Um, I just needed to change. And so she kept pushing and pushing, and I kept pushing back and pushing back like an idiot. And so in 2001, at my, 2002, at my, I get fired. I take off. I tell my wife, I need to go get something at the club. I'll be back in a little while. When I took off, my intentions were to go get high. And this is the point in my life where the light bulb goes off, the lights come on brighter than a runway. I mean, there's just this great big neon sign saying, you're an idiot if you don't see me. I pull up 
at the place where I intended to score my drugs. And as I'm pulling up to the place, the DEA, the FBI, the ATF, every imaginable letter of the alphabet involved with the government is there. And they are raiding this place that I was going to. Hello, ding, 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 dummy, back away. (laughs) But I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't see it. Just dumb luck. So I cruise around for a little bit. I find a lot lizard. That's what we call a prostitute. Prostitute for truckers. I find a prostitute. I ask her where I can score some dope. She tells me there's a motorcycle club close by. That's my that's my ticket. Hmm. So I'm going to the motorcycle clubhouse. I'll get me some drugs. I think I found the clubhouse. So I get out of my car, start talking to a bunch of bikers. They recognize the name. They say, oh, yeah, you know, we know who you are. Let's talk. And so they invite me inside for what I thought was a drink, beer, alcohol of some sort. Come on inside, let's have a drink, and we'll talk a little bit. So I walk into this clubhouse. So I think it's a clubhouse. And as I walk in the front door, to my left at the opposite side of the room, I see these two young men that I know from Cincinnati, Ohio. And they know me. So I kind of work my way to the back of the room and try to hide myself. When up on the stage slides this young man And he says, hi, my name's Jim. By the way, I'm an alcoholic. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I mean, seriously knocked me over with a feather. You're a what? I'm where? (laughs) I'm in an AA meeting, and I don't know it. (laughs) Wow. And as it turns out, it's an Alcoholics Anonymous clubhouse. Oh, wow. Interesting. Because don't a lot of these clubhouses, don't they usually have like bars in them anyway? They do have bars, but they don't serve alcohol. Right. I mean, they serve soft drinks, coffee. They serve snacks. They serve some food to some degree. And it's also that people can get comfortable while they're listening to some of these meetings. Because all day long, every hour on the hour at an AA clubhouse, there is a meeting. Whether it be a 12-step meeting, well, whether it be a 12 and 12 meeting, um, whether it, you know, whether it be an open meeting, a lead meeting, whatever. Aren't a lot of their there's meetings always based a on, meeting going on. Aren't a lot of their yes. meetings based on like voting and, and stuff for the club and all like that? No, actually not. Um, what goes on at an AA clubhouse 
it is quite valuable. No, I mean, it's one of the best tools that they have for for alcoholics today because what goes on in an Alcoholics Anonymous clubhouse is just as I said, meetings like open meetings. Open meetings, by the way, are a meeting where people can talk openly. It's an open discussion about alcoholism. The topic might be thrown out, um, the big book. And so the topic will start from the big book and they'll say, well, I read this in the big book or I read this in the big book. And what do you think about this? And it's just an open discussion is basically what it is. What I, what I meant though is, uh, is like the regular biker club aren't they using aren't their meetings usually about the club and stuff you vote on and um right yeah not for the a clubhouse right for for a motorcycle clubhouse um first of all you have to be a patch member to get into a clubhouse mm-hmm. or be a prospect to get into a clubhouse yeah and because they knew my name I would have been allowed into the clubhouse because I am a patched member from another club. And it was a brotherhood club. Right. So I would have been acceptable in there, which is why I thought that's what they were doing was inviting me in for a drink. <laughs> um, and so interestingly enough, they invite me into an AA clubhouse. And it's a lead meeting, and a guy gets up on stage, and what happens in a lead meeting is they tell you what it was like while they were getting drunk, what assholes they were when they were drunk, what it's like to get sober, and what their life was like now that they are sober. And so... The guy up there on the stage tells his story. And he said the defining moment in his life, that aha moment when he absolutely knew he had to get sober, was when a 15-year-old boy attacked him with a two-by-four and nearly beat him within an inch of his life and left him for dead stole his wallet and took the $500 out of it that he had was all he had. He had just gotten released from the military. That 15 year old boy was me, by the way. Oh, wow. This was many, many years before and absolutely nobody could have known that story, but him and I. Did you know where he was going? Did you know who he was? And did did you know where he was going with the story? I I had no clue. How did he know he was talking about you? When he started describing the events that led up to that night, just as the hair on my arms is doing right now, it started to tangle and the hair on my arms stood up. Because I knew from the moment he said, 
as that boy crawled out the window, I knew we were going to be in a fight. Hmm. From the moment he said that, there was no doubt in my mind who he was talking about. He was talking about me. Because when I was 15, I was living homeless on the streets. I had run away from home, was trying to avoid going back to my parents' house. I was hanging out with all the wrong people. And I was living in what we called the tunnels underneath the Oregon district in Dayton, Ohio. There are a series of interconnecting tunnels that probably were going to be used for a subway, but never got finished. Right, right. And so these tunnels interconnected all over the city. You could go pretty much anywhere, and they were centralized under the Oregon district in Dayton. So I had been living in the tunnels and I went into a tool and dye company to take a shower because their shop had a locker room that had showers in it and stuff. And living homeless, you're not the cleanest anyway. And so I had broke into this place, cleaned up, was coming out when this guy saw me coming out the window. I thought that he was going to run across the street to the fire station and tell them that I had just broke into that building. So before I could let him run away, I had to stop him. And I just started wailing on him and wailing on him and wailing on him. And I took his money out of his wallet to make it look like a robbery. And I had hoped he would die. As sick as that sounds, I didn't want anybody to know what I had done. And if they knew it was me, there would be hell to pay. And the reason I knew there would be hell to pay was because that same night, Later that night, that building caught fire and burnt to the ground. So if if they had been able to connect me to that fire in any way, shape, form, or fashion, I'd have been charged with that fire. Even though I didn't set that fire and I didn't have anything to do with it, I just knew there would be hell to pay. So... I hid from that for many, many eons. But when he started describing the events, I knew it was him. And in his closing remarks, he looked up and he looked, it was as if he was looking right into my eyes. And he said, if I could just find that 15 year old boy today I would tell him that I love him and that he is forgiven and that God forgives him and most importantly I would tell him thank you because that was the moment in time that I knew 
I had to get sober. That hit home with me. Of course. Because that night, I walked to the back of that line so many times trying to be the last person that spoke to him. And I finally succeeded at being the last person. And when I leaned into him, I said, you're welcome. And then I made it a point to ease my way back just a bit and tell him that I had a problem and I needed his help. And he said, are you serious? What I didn't know yet at this point in time was, those two men that I recognized from Cincinnati uh-huh. were there looking for him because they knew the brief details of what had happened and heard that he was going to be speaking. Uh-huh. And they wanted to know if I was the same or if he was the same. But when I told him that, he told me if I was serious, I would have to do it his way. And his way was not an easy way. And I said, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what I have to do. It's now or never. If I don't get clean now, I'm never going to get clean. And I'm going to die miserably. I need to get clean. So he said to me, we'll do it then. They... They literally stripped me down butt naked, took all my clothes off my body, took my shoes away from me, and they took me to a nurse, a nurse practitioner. And this woman lived in the sticks. And when I say in the sticks, I mean in the sticks. She didn't have a neighbor for five miles around her. A very, very rural area called Warsaw, Kentucky. It's near Falmouth, Kentucky. So they take me down to this lady, butt naked, and they put me in a room. With no bed, nothing but a bucket. And they tell me, that is your toilet for the next 10 days. You will rinse it out and clean it out every time you dirty it. That is your toilet. So for the next 30 days, in that hellhole, and, and I say it was a hellhole because figuratively it was a hellhole. It was really a godsend for me. Um, they would not allow me any medication of any kind to come down off of the drugs. They wanted it to be natural. They wanted me to feel everything that I needed to feel to understand just what it would be like if I went back to this world again. 
So that was the God sent part because it really did make me understand. I don't ever want to go back there. That alone has kept me sober for the last 18 years, 19 years. Mm-hmm. August 21st will be 19 years. Mm. Now, now, did you ever tell that guy that you were that kid? I did that night. I told him, you're welcome. I didn't know if he knew what that meant. And I told him, yes, yes. He knew exactly what that meant. Because at the moment I told him that, I could feel the hair on his neck stand up. Uh I was was hugging him. I was giving him a hug, and I pulled him in close. And I said, you're welcome. And I could feel the hair on his neck stand up. He pushed me back and he said, you're him. I said, 18 years later, I'm him. And he said, how did you know? I said, I didn't. How did you know? And he said, I didn't. And it was funny because that's when we found out that those two guys knew. And that's why they were there. Right. They were trying to get him to come to give me a wake-up call, and they didn't know I was there because I needed a wake-up call. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting how God works, how he puts everything into place, what he wants to be in place at the exact moment in time he wants it to be in place. You can't explain that any other way to me and make me understand it other than God's hand was all over that night. From the moment I fell off that truck, as painful as it is to say, I had to fall off that truck. As painful as it is to say, I had to lose that job. I had to be pushed to the limits to go to that drug house where the cops were going to be seizing everything so that I would go looking for those bikers and find that AA clubhouse because I all of those things had to be in place and they had to work out that way. That's what God does for us. When he loves you and he loves every one of you, he will show you in his way exactly just how much he loves you. But it's not on your time. It will never be on your time. Because believe me when I tell you, I would love for God to have shown me much sooner that he loved me. But it was his time. It was important for him to show me when it was right because he had to show me his way so that I would understand how to help others get to this place. Right. It has prepared me for everything I've done since. That day. So how, and how old were you when that day? 
I was 30, let's see, that was 2002, so I was 33. All right, so that's still what? Another I was born seven... July 6, 1969. So that's still another seven years until you lose your sight. Yes. So, so fast forward now, I'm clean and sober. And I'm living life large because my businesses are running smoothly and effectively. I've got a paycheck. I'm driving full time. I'm making good money. I'm doing everything I love doing. My weekly pay, my weekly pay, not an exaggeration, not an overstatement, an exact figure. My weekly paycheck was five grand. That was my weekly pay. Pretty good. Before taxes. So fast forward now to 2012. Well, 2010, we'll start there. Because that's when I found out that I was losing my vision. I was diagnosed with an allergic reaction to a drug that was in trial phases still at that point. Or not necessarily in trial phases, but in in the licensing phases. So this allergic reaction caused glaucoma-like symptoms causing excessive pressure to the eyes, causing them to cup out. So they try everything in their power between 2010 and 2012 to save my vision. I mean, we're talking 22 drops a day, every day in each eye. We're talking surgeries, laser surgery where they bore a hole into my eyes so that it would release pressure um, so they could put a needle in there to remove pressure or add fluid. Whatever they needed to do, they had to leave those holes there. Then they put in shunts. So multiple eye surgeries. Fast forward, November 5th, 2012. I woke up five o'clock that morning with 2080 vision, eight o'clock. Excuse me. It was an early day for me or a late day for me, I should say. I slept in till eight o'clock because I knew I only had doctor's appointments that day. So I got up that morning. I rode my Harley to my doctor's appointment and I'm told that my eye pressure is extremely low and they need to add fluid. So it's a routine for me now, and it's no big deal. But when the doctor goes to do it, the procedure that she's using is not the procedure that I'm used to. And it's causing me pain, and I tell her it's causing me pain. And she goes and gets another doctor to come in And hold me down, hold my arms down so that she can inject this fluid into my eye. When she did that, 
um, it was lights out. It was literally lights out. And that afternoon at 5 p.m., I saw nothing. And I was told, don't worry about a thing. Your vision will return in a few days. It's just optic nerve spasms. It's just everything will be fine in a few days. That didn't happen. Two years later, both of my eyes have been removed. I have prosthetics. And it is what it is. Now, some people might say, why don't you sue that company? To that, I say, no. Even if I could, I wouldn't. Because blindness is the best thing that ever happened to me. Hands down, the best thing that ever happened to me. Before you explain that, strange. Before you explain that, what, um, how did you initially deal with just the fact that your sight was gone? I was panic stricken. I was outraged. I tried to kill myself. I came home. I cut my wrist. By the way, I'm not going to share details with you about the right way to do it. I will just tell you that if you cut your wrist across, that's the wrong way to cut your wrist. Because essentially what happens is if you cut them in a cross motion, you can literally, when you go limp, your body can push its, its, its limbs up and pinch off the bleeding and thus aid in preserving your life, which is exactly what happened to me. Right. Did you ever consider it? It wasn't relapsing? my time. Uh, relapse was at the forefront of my mind constantly then. Right, that's what I figured. I wanted to relapse desperately. And and there was really nothing to stop me other than myself. I, I just, I, I, I didn't know if I could make it there now. Because being blind is different than having sight. Because if I go back to drugs and alcohol, I've got to go back to the motorcycle club. If I go back to the motorcycle club, I can't ride. I'm useless to my brothers. Hell, as far as they're concerned, I can't even work on a bike anymore. I'm useless to my brothers. And most importantly, if I were to get mixed up in criminal activity of any kind, I can't make it in prison because I'm blind. At least that's the way I perceived it then. It was the most horrifying feeling. Wanting to relapse, knowing I can't relapse, 
knowing that I gotta face this, so I was going to commit suicide again. So I get my nine millimeter out of the closet. By the way, I'm illegally possessing a firearm and I can go to jail just for that because I'm a convicted felon. But I don't care. So I put the gun to my head and I'm ready to kill myself. And my dog jumps up on the bed and knocks the gun out of my hand, causing it to fire. The gun goes off, goes through a couple walls, ends up out in the wood. Uh, very easy for a cop to find. So once again, my plan is thwarted. Um, I don't succeed. I'm an absolute failure at blindness. I'm a failure at trying to kill myself. Um, a failure to the motorcycle clubs. This is the mindset. This is my, my thought pattern at that moment in time. I'm useless. I'm awake. I'm worthless. I'm nobody. And I just wanted to be rid of myself. Many failed attempts later, I'm not having any success. Um, I run into a couple that are probably the most important part of my life today. I don't stay in touch with them enough, but I should because these people were my lifeline. I called these people day and night. On the weekends when they weren't at work, they were on the phone with Denver. On the weekdays when they came home from work, they were on the phone with Denver. They were working 24-7 trying to help me. Um, and, and they taught me everything about how to be blind. They did. They, you know, because there's no, there's no user's manual for how to be blind. There is no blindness for dummies book. By the way, there should be, but there's not. Yeah. There's, there's no handbook out there for anybody on how to wipe your ass blind. Pardon my expression, uh, yeah. but it's real. Right, right. There's no handbook out there that tells us how to eat our food. There's no handbook out there that tells us how to cut our food. So there is no shame. If you are blind and you are within earshot of this podcast, know this. It is okay to ask for help if you need it. Do not be afraid to ask a server to cut up your food for you. Yes, you should be able to do it yourself, and you probably should take some time to learn, but do not be afraid to ask. That is the one thing that will be a fatal flaw for anybody. You will fail. There will be no success for you if you are not able to ask for some help at some point, yeah. you've got to be able to ask for it. 
and you just got to know who to ask for that help. Right. I fortunately had Dennis and Monica Runyon. I need to give them props because they were the ones. They were the ones that brought me out of my funk. They kept me from wanting to kill myself. They kept me from wanting to use drugs. They kept me on my feet and on my toes constantly. They gave me the skill sets that made me comfortable enough to be able to pick up a spatula and a pair of barbecue tongs and go out there and cook on the grill again. So it can be done. It should be done. There are people out there that will help you with these things. Don't be afraid to ask. Right. And do not think for one minute that you're a failure because you had to ask. That is not the case. You so, always need help. One way or another, you always need help. So what made you come to the realization of that it was the best thing that ever happened to you? That has taken me eight years to get to. Um, blindness is the best thing that ever happened to me because it made me want to get healthy. It made me want to figure out how to live life. It made me want to live again. It made me want to be able to do for myself and not be dependent on a system or one individual. It made me want my independence back, and that gave me the spark and the drive that I needed to power forward. I smell differently now. I hear differently now. Feel differently now. And don't get me wrong, folks. I'm not saying that I have super sense because that's not the case. That's not the case at all. That just means that I pay more attention to what I smell, mm -hmm. what I think, what I feel when I touch something, when I smell things, when I taste them. I taste things differently now. When I taste, I'm looking for flavors. And I can actually tell you when there's garlic in something. Interestingly enough, I can tell you how long your ice cubes have been in the freezer. Just by the way they taste. Mm -hmm. I can also tell you if you use tap water or if you use filtered water to fill your ice cube tray. It's just because we pay more attention to our senses. When we lose our vision, we start to pay more attention. And when you do that, a whole new world opens up. All right. Now, uh, so that's, yeah, go ahead. that's where I came from. That's how I got so now what are you doing with your, with all your knowledge and your time? I mean, I kind of said in the beginning, but uh, how, so, yeah, how did the radio show come about? 
Well, that's really interesting because that one just kind of dropped into my lap. <clears throat> so I started a nonprofit organization called The Blind Leading the Blind. The idea for my nonprofit was to raise funds to aid the less fortunate in obtaining the unreachable adaptive technologies that exist. Because if you're blind, you know a pin friend is not cheap. Jaws is not cheap. Um, open book is not cheap. Curves Wow is not cheap. KNSB Reader for the iPhone is not cheap. These things are not cheap, and we need that extra help. Because believe it or not, when you're blind, most of us are living on a fixed income. Yep. Not all of us, but most of us. Right. And if you're on a fixed income, <clears throat> $1,500 for JAWS is not an easy task. No. Unless if you're living on a fixed income, exactly. If you're looking, living on a fixed income and you need a Victor Reader track, you're not going to get it. Right. That's most people's disability plus a, a paycheck. Yes, that, that is the problem. We live below the poverty line. And so I started a nonprofit called The Blind Leaving the Blind. And I will tell you that I failed miserably with my first nonprofit because I lost my nonprofit status. I have not finished up the paperwork to get that back yet. That is in the works. You will. But it is a timely process. I have plans to finish it up, but in my time. So, in the meantime, I get introduced to the uncensored party lines. If you're not familiar with the 712 party lines, you need to become familiar. If you're blind and you don't have a network, you don't have friends to help you. You need uncensored party line, and they need you. So I get on these party lines, and I find an interestingly new world for me. I find other blind people that need similar help. We talk to one another. We get to know one another. We eventually form a family, a union, if you will. We have a small group of people that are all very close together. We have a sighted individual amongst us who does a radio show called <clears throat> He Said, She Said. It's on Wednesday nights on Blog Talk Radio. And uh, so we listen to his show every week. I'm kind of intrigued, so I start calling in. They get kind of intrigued by some of what I've said, 
and they suggest that I should do a show. So I now have my own show on Sunday night called Beating the Odds with Denver. That's how the show came about. Initially, the show was going to feature visually impaired people only. I soon realized that there is a much larger need than just in the visually impaired community. So I know I need to reach out to other disabilities, other abilities, if you ask me, because most of us, when we lose a limb or we lose a sense, we get new ones. We really do. Mm -hmm. uh, spidey senses are real, people. They really are. If I tell you my spidey senses are tingling, that means I know something's about to happen, and I do usually feel it. It's amazing. And there are others that, that have missing limbs that need just as much help and don't know where to reach out to for it. So that's what we're about. So we're on 712-432-5911. We're in a different room every day, and to list every single room would be a near impossibility. I will just tell you, if you need to talk to us, you come to that number. And you will find us in one of the first 10 rooms, no matter what day of the week it is. Between 1 and 10, you will find us every day of the week. And there will be somebody there that will be more than eager to help you. I promise you that. Yeah. Yeah, I like I said, I'm, I'm just joining myself and it was, I had a lot of fun and uh, get to meet all new people. And it's, you know, I mean, just doing this podcast even before meeting you, like it's just, that was kind of the same, my same start where I just kind of did stuff about eye stuff and, and uh, interviewed a lot of my friends who had eye problems. And then it just kind of took off from my cousin's son who had autism. And, and then I just, I kind of just realized like, not only is it a bigger market, but it's just, there's, way more to talk about like staying with just the eye department is, is kind of wrong like we should take care of each other it shouldn't just be the eye department and yes. the deaf department and the paraplegics and this and then like yes. we are all always pushed into the same category the guy in the wheelchair logo and it's like so then why don't we stick together and actually make some real change um and i think that's what a lot of these shows that don't do that where they just stay uh, what they know is, is kind of hurting them because it doesn't, I mean, it, it's still good, but you're not going to reach as many people and you're not going to help as many people. And, and, you know, like I said, we're so, you know, as you and I talked on the show before about 1.8 billion of us. Um, and if we don't, like if we stick together, then we're unstoppable. It's just kind of bridging that gap and bringing us all together to actually do that uh, is the, is the hard part. But, you know, the fact that there's people like you and I out here doing it and there's others, um, you know, we can slowly kind of bridge the gap and hopefully there make some real change. One of the most profound statements our forefathers had the sight to put out there is united we stand, 
divided we fall. Right. If we come together as a community, if we all come together. Now, notice I said if. That's the biggest word in the English vocabulary. Right, right, right. Even though it only has two letters, it is the biggest word. Yeah. Because rarely does if ever come to fruition. Right. And when those things but were created, if, they, they didn't really mean that yes. for everyone. They meant that for certain people. And, you know, if they really wanted a united yes. front, then a lot of things that are going on then and now wouldn't be happening. Um, but you mean the legitimate, like those, those sentiments are amazing when they're used properly. Um, but when yes. they were created, well, they weren't used for that intent. Right. That's they, they used a statement from the Bible. They did what most agnostics do. Most, non-believers do they misquote or misrepresent a quote to use it for ill-gotten gains right um in, in the bible jesus talks about a united front quite a bit and 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 so it's it's really important to note that that is biblical. It is not just what our forefathers thought. They put it out there in such a way that it's it's noticeable to everybody. You can look for it because it says we're the United States, but we're not really united anymore, guys. We're not. There's always going to be Republicans and Democrats. There's always going to be party lines. If we could erase those party lines and come together as one nation the way we should, we could conquer all the bad stuff that's going on. Yeah. If we could just get together, yeah. come together. We always talk about we're this beacon of hope, where the, you know, you know, United States, we're the ones that are, you know, we're the best country in the world. And, and yes. to most degrees we are, but it's, it's because of, you know, obvious things in certain places that are just like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously you're better than that slum or that place over there, but that's not much to brag about because we have so many other problems. Um, and I think a lot of times we tend to try to take other care of other countries and all that. And, um, but that's a whole other discussion, but, um, but yeah, I mean, if if you want to, you just got to take care of each other. And if we start with ourselves and we start working, maybe we can influence one country over and then they start and maybe, and maybe not, but if we take care of each other, we're doing our part. And, um, yes. And that's what starts with our community, like the disabled community, because we're the community that's always forgotten. And, you know, people are, are, you know, in our community are so happy because they got a mention by Joe Biden, but it was a mention. And again, I'm not saying he's, I'm, I don't vote, but whether he does something or does, does or doesn't, we don't know. But the fact that he, we even got a mention is something that we're celebrating, which is sad because it's like, man, we, that's all we needed because we need a lot more than just someone to just mention us in, in, a, in a speech. Um, just oh, to, yes. You know, we need to be included in every, you know, form of anything. Um, hell, anybody who even, portrays us in a movie or a show they're not even disabled like there's never any real for the most part there's never any real portrayal of us ever i mean forrest gump is one of the most popular movies ever he was not he didn't have any kind of mental problems that was tom hanks 
So it's like we yep. again. It was it was a good movie and it was well done, but it's still like we don't ever have any real portrayal. People that that I mean that in a way, it's a lot. It's kind of like pe- white people just doing blackface. Like it, it's a disservice to us. Like we don't ever have a real yeah. opportunity to actually, you know, show them what our lives are really like. Um, instead of actually having someone with Down syndrome or something play them. They actually just rather get some, and again, there's certain mental problems that are harder to do, but you can get someone that's close enough to can actually portray yeah. it. There's plenty of people that are really special in this world and not special in the, in the sense of putting someone down, um, you know, that can really show you what our lives are like or, and their lives are like, um, without having to get someone who's just normal or whatever you want to call them. Um, again, but that, that, a lot of that is also on us too, because a lot of us just sit in the shadows we're expected to just things are going to change and it's not unless you put your voice out there and you actually show that you, you need something and you want something and you're going to fight for it. Um, that's the only way you're going to get it. You're not going to get it by just waiting for someone to knock on your door and go here, here's all your rights. And here's all the things that you've been wishing and dreaming. You actually have to go earn it and have to, and even if you already, even if you didn't deserve what happened to you, doesn't mean you can't change that your outcome and, and change your statistics and everything that's ever happened. And, have a better life. But I think a lot of us, yeah. you know, there's that stigma attached to us that a lot of us like to just sit around and collect disability. And there are some of us that do that, but there's a lot of us that don't. Um, and it's like, we have to try to make less of that. We have to, we have to show them like what we're about because, you know, we, we, we talk about superpowers and all that, but we are the closest thing to having superpowers. It's not, yeah. even, it, 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 it's a fact. Like we are people who literally fight every day and we, we overcome so many obstacles and, uh, you know, and suicide is the easy way out. Even if it's hard to do, it's the easy way out. And so yep. many of us choose to stay and fight and continue to try to make a difference, even if it's in our own lives and our family's lives, whatever. But we impact way more people that we don't even know, but we, we always impact them. And again, we, we make people disgusted and so many other things as well, but yeah, we impact people too. And, and, Again, superhero like so um yeah i don't know this was fun buddy well thank you very much tj yeah of course i i know i went over the time you were had to be done by a certain amount but you know i didn't want to shut you up yeah we'll be all right all right good um, yeah but yeah i will um, it'll be episode 40 so i'm putting out 35 this week so in about five weeks it'll be coming out okay uh, I moved you up a few slots just because I appreciate what you had, having me on. And uh, of course we're going to stay in touch and you know, whatever you need for your show, just let me know and you need a guest or something again. I'm always around. And uh, if you need any guests, let me know. Yeah, I will. I'll I got a few you. that I can send your way. Please do. All right. All right, brother. Take, you take care. care. CJ. Yep. Bye. All right, guys, so <laughs> that might have went a little over time. I don't know. That was really, really fun, and, and I, I honestly didn't know where any of that was going. Uh, Bullet was being a pain in the ass during the whole thing. Yeah, I'm talking to you, mister, in the window. Um, He kept nudging his head against the mount, the, the, the boom arm and all that and whatever. But anyway, um, that was, yeah, I honestly, I didn't know anything about the biker club stuff. I didn't know anything about. But mess. I mean, I knew he had addiction problems. I knew about some of. I knew he went to jail, but I didn't know he went to jail three times. And all. I, again, was, 
thank God I watch a lot of crime shows. Uh, thank God I watched Sons of Anarchy, which is a really good show, by the way. Um, but everything he was talking about, I, which is which is really fucked up about me, is I knew all the crime stuff. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, and there were certain directions I was trying to see, like try to get into it, but like I knew I was right. But yeah, he was talking about the sober stuff. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, that was there were so many turns in there that I was like, holy shit, this is a movie. I don't know where this is going. This is like Breaking Bad, Sons of Anger. There's like a thousand. There's like three, four, five shows in there. It's like, ah. I've seen this show before, uh, but he lived it. Uh, but yeah, this was fantastic. And um, thanks, guys, for supporting. This, the numbers are going up. Everyone's liking it. And um, just trying to make a difference here, guys. I don't know, but I think I'm doing it. So trying to stay positive. And uh, yeah, so thanks to Denver and all the guests coming up and all the guests you've heard and so on. And, you know, trying to build a community and a family. And so we're doing this, guys. So. I'll see you on the next one, guys. Bye.